Dang! Welcome to Arts Forward MKE. I'm your host, Lindsay Sheridan, Director of Marketing and PR at Imagine MKE. You've just tuned into the second part of a double feature episode that focuses on professional vocal early music ensemble, Aperi Anima. Catch part one in your podcast feed to hear from two co-founders of the group, Daniel and Jackie. Here in part two, I'm really glad to welcome three past and present singers in the ensemble. In the order you'll first hear them speak, they are Austin Baer, Tiana Sorensen, and Nicole McCarty. They were the panelists in a recent virtual event called Black Voices Matter, put on by Perry Animam. Our conversation starts with their sharing their experience of being Black in the classical music and music worlds, and really broadens from there. Daniel Coplitz, a Perry Animam's Executive Artistic Director, also stuck around for this chat, so you'll hear from them occasionally too. Enjoy listening in. Really glad to welcome to the podcast, Nicole McCarty, Austin Bear, and Tiana Sorensen. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having us. So you all were part of a panel just last week, uh, Black Voices Matter, that Aperi Animam put together. And so really glad to have you here to amplify some of the stories and experiences that you shared there with our audience here on this podcast and encourage folks to go back and check out the full hour and a half that you spoke uh, to the audience over at Aperi uh, and also to Venmo you if they hear something they really love. I love that. So we're going to drop your Venmos here as well. Um, so if something really resonates with you and you want to show your appreciation for the Nicole, Austin, and Tiana taking their time to share their experience with us, please do that. So to start, uh, starting it off with a question I ask all of my guests. Do you remember a time early in life that you experienced art in a way that impacted you deeply? I think I could probably go first. Um, so there was a time when I was in probably sixth or seventh grade, I want to say. And my family and I went to go see uh, Broadway's The Lion King um, at, uh, in Madison. And seeing and hearing the sound and experiencing like the, the culture and especially with an all black cast, it was just incredible to me. And I had never experienced anything like that before. And after that moment, I was like, I want to do that. I want to be a part of something like that, something big, something that changes the world and the outlook of the world. Um, so yeah, I think that's what really pushed me in the direction of music. Yeah, I can go. I think for me, um, the music stuff probably started hitting around when I was six or seven. Um, seven was when I started playing the violin. Um, and also specifically in my um, kids' church choir, um, we used to do these like musicals every year in the spring. Um, and we did this one and I got to be the role of Harriet Tubman. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so yeah, did, um, you know, kind of like a rendition of Precious Lord and Lead Me Home. Um, so seven year old me is just kind of like bouncing and just like singing this solo. And <laughs> it was just a really uh, special moment for me to start because it was just like, you know, my moment and it's a really cool experience and just bonus points because obviously like I get to portray Harriet Tubman so seven-year-old me was like ah yes yeah. yes <laughs> yeah. I guess it's my turn 
so I was a very um, shy kid. Uh, I guess like very anxious when it came to being in public and having, cause you always had to like read something in a classroom or whatever. And I just remember shaking and actually not being able to function. I think that's called stage fright, but I, I don't know. So then I actually, <laughs> when I moved to Johnsburg, which is like mostly white populace, um, they do every year, the middle schoolers would do a show, a musical. And I really, really wanted to do it for some reason, the person with major stage fright. And so I auditioned to be in Wizard of Oz and I really wanted to be Scarecrow. Of course I didn't get it because my version of auditioning I, I could sing okay, but the audition part was just, but it wasn't, it was through music, like being in choir, being in band, and eventually actually being in the shows because I learned um, how to fight the anxiety, but all of that helped me get out of my shell as a person and to be more like I'm an introverted person, so I'm not as personable as some other people, but it's taught me how to be more personable and to put my best face forward. And so music has always just been that part of me that's really helped me in school mentally, like actually learning things. I think it actually really did help me as a student. Um, and it was a, it was something that I was naturally good at. So it was something that I could rely on and feel at home in a world where I felt like the outcast. So it was, it was just something that's been a part of my life since I was in middle school. So, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing about all of your origins and music and performance. Can you share with us what brought you to Milwaukee and then how you came to be involved in performing with a Periani mom? Well, I'm the newest, so I guess I can go first. Uh, so <laughs> I I actually was teaching in Wisconsin. I did my undergrad at uh, Whitewater, and then I taught for six years. And I really wanted to get my master's degree, but I didn't want to move to some far off place. And uh, someone that I worked with and uh, some of my undergrad professors said, you should try Milwaukee. Tanya Cruz is really awesome and their other faculty is really good. So I looked into it and I pretty much decided Milwaukee was gonna be my place. I didn't apply anywhere else. I just went, it's either Milwaukee or it's not meant to be. And then it, it worked out. And then I was looking my last year there, I'm like, doo -doo -doo, I'd like to do more performances, but whatever. And then I saw on Facebook, a Perry's looking for a soprano. I went, oh me it's meant to be me i'm going to <laughs> so i messaged and i went i'm gonna audition i really want to do this i really liked when they did utterance that was so cool i want to do that and i want to do all this other same stuff this stuff looks really cool and yeah i was actually surprised because i'm like oh you actually want me to join <laughs> i thought it was just going to be another audition experience where they go yeah good job <laughs> but yeah it's been really fun so that's how I got into it yeah I guess I uh I came to Milwaukee to pursue an undergrad in uh, vocal performance um wasn't my first choice but it definitely uh it definitely became that like diamond in the rough with all the vocal instructors and just like the good music school um and then 
So Danny and I actually went to UWM at the same time. We were freshmen and sophomore and stuck together. And they actually asked me to be a part of an up and coming early music ensemble. I had never done something like that. So I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is gonna be fun, like new experience. Um, so yeah, I was kind of a, uh, like a founding member and I've been with them ever since. Um, so yeah. Okay, um, so what brought me to Milwaukee? <laughs> um, well, like I mentioned in the panel, I actually started my first year of undergrad at Stevens Point and just felt like my teacher, the teachers were great, but just the environment, I felt very othered and just not, just not really comfortable. And I, I needed some more diversity personally. So I had a friend I've, <laughs> um, I've known since middle school just suggest to me, why don't you just come here and take, um, <laughs> and take lessons with Dr. Tanya Cruz Ruff. <laughs> um, and I was just like, oh, okay. Um, so transferred and yeah, it was everything that I was looking for and that I needed at the time. So it really worked out. And then how I got into Aperiani mom, <laughs> you know, honestly, I don't even remember. I'm pretty sure Danny just asked. <laughs> like, Probably harassed. <laughs> but you know I was excited for it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they casually asked. And I was like, yeah, um, please. And sadly, I couldn't stay because I had to go to grad school, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that was, yeah, you left. Yeah. Yeah, so that's why. <laughs> you got to sing with all these beautiful Chicago groups. But yeah, there was, it was a lot of this like, hey, everyone, hey, we're doing like a, we're doing like a chamber choir and it's just going to be us and like those, these people that really like choral music and we're going to do it really good and we're only going to do early music. That's it. And that's what we're going to do. And everyone was like, mm, yeah. <laughs> I could get on board with that. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite the outlet, especially since like the school is so classically focused. Mm. It wasn't early music or anything. It was just only classical opera, stuff like that. So. Yeah, we didn't have that type of outlet or just, so he re they really brought something fresh to Milwaukee. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> uh. Yeah. Thank you, Danny. You're welcome. Thank you, Diana. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that you talked about in the panel that I want to surface here as well, and you, and you talked about making the choice to go to school to get your degrees in music and uh, the real lack of representation of having black teachers growing up, black professors. Um, Tell us more about coming to the decision to pursue, pursue a career in classical music and how, how that might have been influenced by not necessarily having those mentors uh, who looked like you, who were black early on. What kind of what led you to this career path? Yeah. Um, whew, all of these thoughts are coming in my head. Um, well... Yeah, not having, you know, Black or BIPOC mentors. Um, honestly, that, I mean, maybe I'll speak for myself at least, but in a sense, that's just kind of the norm, you know. 
I was used to not having mentors that looked like me. I'm used to not having people in like a classroom setting that look like me, or at least like, you know, are the majority. So it's, it's, <laughs> for me, it kind of wasn't new. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that it's less terrifying. It's always, yeah, you never know what you're going to walk into. Um, and yeah, and who you can share these certain experiences with. So yeah. <laughs> Mm. I'll start there, <laughs> but I'll leave it for the other two to say something. I'm kind of on the same boat as you, Tiana. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh no, there's no black teachers. It, it wasn't really in my thought process. It was more, you know, centralized of like I wanted to not be the center of focus. But as like Austin said before, performing became an outlet to not be in this situation to be something else. Um, so I pursued it, I guess, in spite of that, or in spite of like limitations or not seeing any teachers that are black. It was never anything to do with that. It's what I wanted to do. It's what made me feel whole and made me feel just at, grounded as a person. And so I didn't let myself get limited by my race. I didn't really, let that be a factor. It's like, you're going to like me or you're not going to like me. It's kind of how it's going to be. And I'm still on that same mindset. So I, I do like that I could be that teacher for some people, though. Um, unfortunately, I, I can't stick with school districts, but at least I could be that face for some of the students to see um, that you can be a teacher or you can do things no matter what your race is. But yeah, I guess that answers your question maybe um it's definitely like uh definitely a hindsight thing um going through the program had no inkling of like why it is the way it is i'd never thought about that i was just trying to finish i was trying to get to the end without like i don't know um but then now i'm at now i'm in this position of reflection um and self-growth so looking back on it, now it's more of like, oh, wow, that's, that's kind of a problem. Like, why are we in the most diverse city with no black faculty? Like, that's, that's crazy to me. Um, or like a low, low BIPOC population in the music program. Like, that's, that's crazy. Um, but definitely, like, during my process, didn't even come across. I didn't even think about it. Um, wish I had, but yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, like, yeah, kind of going off to what we're all saying. Yeah, we're just so used to predominantly white, you know. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, it's just the norm, you know. Um, and I, I really hate to say that, but like, especially in a place like Wisconsin, at least. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just... It's odd. Yeah, it, it does kind of stink, Austin, that we can't realize it. But yeah, at the same time, kind of like what we mentioned on the panel, like, we're just doing us, we're living our lives, you know, like black folks, we live our lives. We're not, we're not a problem. It's other folks that make our humanity a problem. Mm -hmm. You talked about 
the topic of race being taboo and maybe especially in, definitely especially in classical settings that folks are so wrapped up in their in their white fragility and the the sort of expectations of what classical music looks like the unfair <laughs> uh the unfair expectations and to accommodate that you spoke about kind of becoming like the jokester in the room making jokes to break the tension and having to take on that um that burden so i wonder if you can share with our audience a little bit more about that and and share not that you should have to take on the burden of of telling white folks and white colleagues how to make it better but how do you how do you wish that white colleagues had shown up in those instances where you had to kind of take on that that persona of being the jokester when you shouldn't have had to um i guess i could give an example of when they when i did have friends that stood up for me and I didn't have to ask them to. And then they're the reason that I realized, oh, this isn't okay. Um, I guess because I joked about it so much, um, my undergrad, I remember we went to Chicago, the choir, we went on tour and we went to Chicago to see a comedian. comedian. We were all really, really excited about it. And um, I made a joke often about how my dad's black, my mom's white, and when I was a kid, I like thought I should be gray because when I colored, when I did black and white, I'm like, why am I not gray? <laughs> so I would make jokes like that. And then one of my friends, she held up like a ticket and the ticket was white and the words were black. And she's like, see, look, it's you, Nicole. And just kind of, I don't know, just how she did it. And all of that stuff, it was like, uh, and I didn't know how to react. It was more just like, am I, do I think this is funny or is this not funny? And my friend's like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> so she, she just kind of backed me up without me needing to. And, she, and I'm like, no, no, it's okay. She's like, no, it's not okay. They shouldn't be talking to you like that. That's not okay to bring up your race for something stupid. It's a stupid ticket. She's like, what? Where this wall is white. So that's my mom. Like what? And I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, I mean, I was able to just not have to be that person that fought because I didn't really feel comfortable doing that. I didn't want to be the angry, as Tiana said, the angry black person. So it was just, uh, that was nice. And then, you know, I have friends now that um, would be supportive, but I'm, I'm now to the point where I don't make jokes about it. And so I've learned not to do that. And so now people don't joke about it to me. It's not like, hey, your race is funny. It's it's not really a thing that is brought up. I think I have like an intimidating presence. So people rarely bring it up around me, <laughs> but it's just kind of, <laughs> I don't know. I think if I were to say what I would wish for in colleagues, it's just not to assume that because I'm laughing that it actually is funny and it's okay. It's, it's like if someone was talking about something um, like molestation and they were joking about it and someone who had experienced it was laughing, that doesn't mean it's okay. They're uncomfortable, so they're laughing. And so to have someone stand up for you and say, this isn't funny, sexist jokes aren't funny, talking about someone's sexuality isn't funny and joking about it because it's not you. So I guess that's all I could say is just step back and maybe not laugh. You don't really have to do anything. Just don't laugh at it because it's not funny. So. Yeah. yeah. And 
even just, yeah, talking about how we make jokes, you know, also just like, <laughs> we can talk about just like how black culture is appropriated and caricaturized. So like, it's, it's almost so easy to just laugh about it because that's what everyone else is doing. Um, so like, we're so used to like, I think I mentioned these words in the panel too. Black folks are so used to appeasing, accommodating and acclimating to environments. So like, this is just kind of a survival tactic and like survival is such a, it can seem like a strong word, but in a sense, it's what we're doing because we're, <laughs> we're not trying to be particularly made fun of at least directly, but yet, ugh. but um, yeah, yeah, we're just trying to maintain our safety, whether it's emotional, physical, mental. So yeah, we crack jokes because we've been, <laughs> we've been a joke, <laughs> you know, throughout the centuries. So it's, it's kind of like how it's like, but we already have been, we're just going along with what, you know, folks think they may want to hear. Mm. I don't know about y'all's family, but my dad's side of the family, the black side, uh, they laugh and they'll make jokes, you know, themselves. And so you kind of learn from them as well. So it's just, it's very loud and boisterous. And it's just, as Tiana said, it's a defense thing. So it's like, well, we're going to be the ones that make the joke because we don't want to be the joke of someone else's joke. So, you know, it's kind of a learned thing as well. Um, I learned how to make jokes about it. <laughs> yeah. So something you mentioned early on in the panel that I really just want to raise up, like amplify is that so often organizations expect the black folks on their team or the black artists that join them for a production to have all the answers when it comes to conversations about race, to avoid having to have those conversations themselves. And I, I, I just want to, I just want to riff on, you know, a lot of, a lot of predominantly white classical music institutions previously totally avoided these conversations, right? And then suddenly there's this cultural reckoning in June where hopefully for permanent good, a switch seemed to flip, right? Um, oh, all these organizations realize they can't ignore how deeply racist they've been uh, in their programming choices and their staff choices, et cetera. And, you know, make a statement, an outpouring of, of support. Um, and I'm wondering if I can be very real, like what, what were your gut reactions to seeing that outpouring in June, probably from organizations or ensembles that you've been involved in before in the classical music world that, that weren't committed to values of equity, weren't committed to taking steps towards inclusion in the past. Like what does it feel like to see that suddenly blow up across all of our social media feeds and feel like, wow, is this actually is this actually genuine? Is this actually gonna gonna lead to something? Oof, um, I can start. Um, for one, um, <laughs> also just being able to attend protests with Danny and friends, um, <laughs> um, having that support system in Milwaukee meant a lot. Um, but yeah, there's just something nice about Milwaukee where there are these community bits, you know, don't get me wrong, it, there's 
a whole like shadow of ignorance all around. But um, to have folks like Danny um, just create that are just amplify our voices in this opportunity is incredible. Um, outside of that, uh, I'm based in Chicago. Um, and just seeing a lot of like opera companies and other bits, some of them are, a switch kind of has gone off, but a lot of them, um, I'll just use the big word here, performative. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, like I actually, I'll leave it unnamed, but I'm still having some communication stuff with an opportunity that I was supposed to have and have not heard any news on that and if it's still happening um and it's from <laughs> um a rather like significant organization um and they still they're they're talking a lot but they're not talking with the actual artists and like so that in itself performative you know they <laughs> i'm not saying all companies but quite a few are just making these very vague statements without any action or plan of action. Um, and then yet they're trying to promote things, uh, making it seem like, see, we give, you know, BIPOC folks, you know, opportunities. And yeah, I'm just so <laughs> at this point, I'm kind of like, well, <laughs> you're talking about putting on this production, but you haven't talked with us folks, do you think that we're just going to accept it because you're the organization that you are and that you think will be so grateful to go about it? I don't know, but for them to be talking about certain plans, but not talking about those plans with us first, um, it's a problem. That <laughs> uh, That's just me on at least one of them, but with like institutions so big and significant like that, for them to not really be listening to the BIPOC folks that they may have. But honestly, I mean, <laughs> BIPOC folks are hardly in like administrative positions, especially like ones like of leadership. So big problem there. So mm. I, I will leave with that <laughs> for now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um in some instances, it was kind of like a slap in the face um, with just like having certain institute, institutions that say like, they don't say Black Lives Matter. They usually are going for like an All Lives Matter statement, but they won't involve Black Lives at all in that, um, which is what we're trying to fight for in this day and age. Um, but they try to use a blanket statement to cover it. And they're like, oh, well, but it's part of it. And that's, that's, not, that's not what we need right now. We need to focus on things. Um, so yeah, it's just like a lack of, lack of involvement, lack of commitment, um, lack of trying to forward change. We don't want empty promises anymore. We want actual action. Um, and you know, sometimes like sometimes it's hard for like individuals to contribute to things, but these are franchises and corporations. They have the funds and the assets to help. And it's not gonna be a detriment to them to help. If anything, it, it would further their cause. 
but they just don't want to commit to something like that, which is sad to see. It's sad because these are the, like, we are the people that will keep these organizations, organizations alive, but they're not forwarding it into our generation, into our people. So. If I were to speak about part of your question, which is um, um, uh, like opera and musical theater companies actually supporting and opening up and making it like Black Lives Matter and we are specifically trying to do this and my reaction to that, um, I would say that's kind of an inevitable thing that was going to happen from the protests and from if they were to keep the people that are actually interested in what they do. Um, they want to, I think that um, some of them, it's really from a good place because their eyes are opening and it's just like, wow, I didn't realize that I was being that way. I'm going to work to not do that. Um, but I think it's also like, it's a way to get more people into it. You know, it's like, look, we're willing to do this. Let's keep the audiences coming in. And this is a hot commodity at the moment. I don't want to speak such a, in such a jaded way. That's kind of what it feels like a little bit. Like it's going to not be a thing um, after a while once this, if this ever, you know, dies down, um, which I don't think it will until things do change. But once it's like less of a thing, then it's like, okay, at least we said we're going to do this. So that's good enough. Um, but I do know of people in Milwaukee that, um, I, I don't want to like name names, but before any of this happened, like officially with uh, COVID and all that, I was contacted and I think I, some other people I know were contacted and said, we are trying to do this um, new thing uh, with the black artists we'd like you to audition we'd like just like black artists to audition for this and it was a thing they were trying to put together and I'm pretty sure that got shelved because of everything but that was something before any of it happened that I thought was a really good thing that they're trying to do in the area it was one of the bigger companies that were trying to do it so I think in Milwaukee we have some actually good companies there that do care but the ones that are silent and not really saying anything, it's kind of, they've chosen their side, you know? So it's like, as Austin said, it's like all lives matter. So it's like, okay, you're not really ready for the change yet. So you've been kind of coasting along with what you have and you don't really want change. And I think change is very hard for people. Um, so I guess I'm appreciative of those that are willing to uh, fight the good fight or go beyond their comfort level because it's not comfortable but it's like until it's a constant thing until I see proof I, I can't really get my hopes up you know I can't be like oh okay so it's gonna be great for all black people now it's it's just it is what it is so yeah and if I could add on to that yeah and <laughs> with these big organizations yeah I feel like they're giving very vague statements because they're trying to please their donors, which can we imagine <laughs> who these donors possibly could be? <laughs> Rich white folks, <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so, like, so that's already one thing. It's the fact, yeah, that these big organizations don't wanna potentially risk losing these big donors because if they put something radical or controversial, you know, they could lose donors and money and just, you know, the business could flop. 
So that's a really significant thing I feel um, with, yeah, like larger organizations. Um, so they're feeling, they're feeling the pressure, I think, but um, yeah, I think some things are going to burn and whether it's like a change of mindset, you know, um, just institutions, like stuff's got to be dismantled. Um, and I think it's going to happen whether they're ready for it or not. We're just going to see how it goes about. <laughs> yeah. What's next? What comes after these statements? I'm going to perform more music of diverse cultures. We're gonna we're gonna be more intentional about our programming. Why weren't you intentional before? What does what are other diverse cultures? Other is is like who is the other? We're diverse from what? Diverse from white? Are you are you, so you're saying that like that the the like the normal the given is just white, and your given is just white music or white art. Um, I, yeah, it seems like I want to see explicit things like that's what I want to see from our, our the classical community like we are going to do this, this and this. And these are our these are our plans for how we are going to we're, we're going to have a, a, a specialist, a consultant come in and look at how we've been dealing with diversity and inclusion and equity in our organization. We're going to provide scholarships for these inner city schools for BIPOC students. We're going to commission BIPOC composers artists like i want to see that stuff like i don't want to see these like we're gonna be more intentional about our programming <laughs> oh yeah no you're not karen <laughs> and you know why? because they need bipoc folks up in these jobs they keep trying to come with these solutions with their you know with all of their like white friends and associates just in the meetings having all this fluff discussion and like there is no there is no substance to kind of what they're talking about because they don't have anything to get substance from. They're just like, what can we possibly do? Black folks are out here like, hey, listen to me. <laughs> I just have no idea what we can do. Hey, like, hello. Like, we, I mean, we have been hollering for centuries. So like, yeah, and it just never, you know, it's never what they want to hear. So until they are willing to shut their mouths <laughs> and let us speak, Hand, cue hand over mouth, as in the panel discussion, then some things could happen, but they just, they want to make it seem like they come up with these ideas on their own and take the credit too. So that's just a whole other thing. They like, yeah, just want to keep building on this reputation that is just not on a solid foundation. So, and here we are in 2020, the, you know, the time of information, and we are just like, oof, knocking those riggedy <laughs> foundations down like was not that hard so <laughs> and I think when they, reach, when they reach those like those achievements those goals they need to keep going they can't just reach a point and stop because then it's just gonna it's just gonna reverse itself right back to where we are now well you check have, the box yeah yeah like you oh good you 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 did one thing out of like the 500 things that need to change and you're just gonna stop there and say it's a complete project. Like, no, you have to, you have to keep doing these things so they become normal. It shouldn't be radical. Civil rights should not be radical. A radical thought, like social social justice, should not be a radical thought. Like, they it needs to become the normal because why isn't it okay for people to have these thoughts? Why is it considered out there? 
for someone to want a livable wage, for a black person to not want to be shot in the street just to be black. Like, why is that, why is that the, the outlier here? Mm -hmm. You have to get to the point and then keep going. Yes. Keep asking those questions. Because, yeah, they want to just, like, leave it at that, awesome, right? Like, they're just like, yeah, we did this. But then if you ask them why, they're kind of like, uh, 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 what? Uh, <laughs> we didn't think we'd get this far. <laughs> so, like, that's all we really got to do is just, like, why? Why did you do that? Why did you say this thing? And see what their answer is, and I think that's a dead giveaway. <laughs> so... I'd love to close on a question that I, I close this pod, this podcast with all the time. Um, if you don't mind, which is, you know, what do you think the future looks like for Milwaukee arts and culture? Um, what are some of our strengths and what are some of our areas for growth? And Tiana, I know you're in Chicago now. So if you, if you want to answer from your Milwaukee perspective that's awesome but if you feel like you don't want to that's too that's all right too yeah i think i could stick to milwaukee i've been around long enough yeah <laughs> um what i would say um i kind of touched on it earlier i believe um milwaukee does have this really great sense of community and there's like homey intimate it's great um so you find these folks that are just so warm and welcoming um and it's fantastic. So I think they really do a good job of making it feel safe. Um, um, with that being said, I guess if anything that maybe could be worked on, it is outreach, I think, because when I'm thinking of these community things, I'm pretty sure it's mostly like on the east side of Milwaukee. Um, what about the west, like the west side and all these different areas? I could be wrong, but um, yeah, it's just reaching out to those other communities that do not get to be on the east side um, that could, yeah, use this information and they can take it or leave it, you know, but just have it be accessible to them. Um, let them know that they have options. Um, that's something that really uh, sticks with me because I've done outreach uh, in Milwaukee uh, for something separate and you know I got to work with kids like 7 to 12 and yeah you know just their their resources are so limited um, so if we could just expand those and make these things accessible I think that is super important and it's so easy I think to overlook it because it can be seen as very intimidating and difficult um, so it, it's, I, I at least acknowledge it. Um, I think some research would have to be done in order to make that outreach effective, but that's one thing I think I'd say. Thank you. Yeah, I kind of see, I like that idea, because um, you start with the kids. Um, but for like more immediate, I see people are now not in Milwaukee, not really willing to just sit by and let things slide anymore. So I see that there's going to be certain groups uh, like companies that are just going to have to be almost the guinea pigs, the experiments. Like we're going to try this and then actually see, have other companies see how well it works out. It's like we hired an entire black cast and we did this 
and we or we did it, um, a show that was written by a, a black composer or something like that and just start it doesn't have to be like this dramatic like everything is inclusive because they don't know how to do that so it's just the small things first but just a continuous change and i think when other things see that it's not as bad as everyone seeming to think it's going to be i don't know why but it's actually good and we're bringing in people because if you actually are a commodity it'll be a commodity it's like we have an entire black cast and it's not the lion king what so it'll just be like other people want to see that be like oh wait you're doing a show that's normally done by white people like cinderella when whitney houston and brandy and all that when i saw that that was like my favorite <laughs> and they had people that were related that would not normally be related they were nowhere near like the king and queen black white with an asian son like <laughs> that didn't that was so cool to me I was just like, this is the best show ever. I love this. So I think if they do stuff more like that, where it's not like, you can't be this character because you don't look like this one. It's like, how about we just try it, you know? So I think I think if they tried that kind of stuff, that would actually open up a lot of doors to saying, okay, it's really not that hard. We're making it seem like it's such a terrible feat that I have to actually find black composers and I have to go find black actors. You know how many black people want to perform in Milwaukee? I mean, come on. So it's just, I think it's the step. So I think that is something I'm hoping to see, just something like that um, to start. Yeah, I think the, um, I think music in Milwaukee is, probably going to be taking a positive turn, but it has to go through this rough patch first. I think it definitely has to, um, organizations have to take a time to reflect on the past and adjust to the future or they'll die, quite frankly. Like they will not survive if they're not going to accommodate because we've been trying to accommodate. Um, but also it's just a matter of like of allocating resources into these communities. I mean, I live in Shorewood. This community is incredibly wealthy in this area. Schools are well-funded. Music programs are well-funded wherever they exist. But West Side, pretty much as soon as I cross the river over here, it's, it's like a whole different town and they need to be uplifting that side of the city because it, it exists and these people exist. Why isn't that a thing yet? And it doesn't, it doesn't involve gentrification because that's just gonna destroy it even more. It's gonna push the not so fortunate folks out of the town because they can't afford it. So you need to, I think Milwaukee needs to take some time to allocate and adjust because it needs to happen. Yeah. I think folks need to just acknowledge too how segregated Milwaukee really is. Um, if we can just get that all out there, I mean, like we say it, you know, but yeah, it's it's so obvious. <laughs> um, well, and just like the issue of like why educate why education and schools, the funding is tied to property tax. This concept blows my mind i don't understand like we all know that white flight happened in the 60s and 70s we all know 
that black folks started coming into Milwaukee and all the white folks went to the suburbs. They went to Whitefish Bay, they went to Shorewood, Brookfield, Greendale, Greenfield, Fox Point. And those schools over there, they are flourishing. They are flourishing. And we have four out of every five black children living in poverty in Milwaukee. Those neighborhoods where these children are living in poverty, you think they're gonna have good schools? You think they're gonna have access to quality arts education? Like you, like these, these organizations in Milwaukee, we need to be looking at ourselves and like, if you're looking at your choir, you're looking at your cast, you're looking at your, your dance team and you aren't seeing color, you need to be asking why that's not there. And like what you're doing with your resources to make sure that that, that that is possible in the future, that you will see more. Like, because that's not, that's not an accurate representation of this community. And especially if you receive grant money from this city and county, you should be reflecting your community. Like, we wanna see reflection of that. And um, yeah, I think I'm touching on like what Nicole, Tiana and Austin all said. I think really that our biggest area for growth and like, I think our future does really look it looks colorful, it looks feminine, it looks queer. That is what our future is. Like we are, we are the Mecca, we are the arts and culture Mecca of Milwaukee. And that's like what, we, we, what we're seeing, we're seeing after decades of work of social change, like decades, centuries of work, we're finally seeing people of color and women in positions of influence. Not a lot, but we are seeing it. Mm-hmm. We're, but we've got this work to do. Yes. Again, I've said this before, we have 40% black, population that needs to be reflected in our in our arts and culture yes and i think it starts in education so yeah to start that you need to fund those schools because schools good teachers are not going to go to that school because it's not funded if i were to go and say i wanted to go teach in milwaukee and say i wanted to teach on the west side they're not going to give me the resources I want. I, it's like, how am I supposed to teach them this stuff? I want them to have all of this stuff, but we can't even afford to have a nice chalkboard, like that kind of stuff. Like they're still using, like if they're still using chalkboards, like there are schools that use smart boards and they have like all this wonderful stuff for kids. And then there's kids in less wealthy communities. They don't have access to this so how can we expect them to go and be a classical singer when they have no idea what that is and so like they might get lucky to have a really good teacher but more than likely they're going to have teachers that are burnt out they don't have the support they're tired uh it's just like i need to get through the day because when you're in a low income community kids are harder they're just harder, they have harder lives, they have different ambitions, and you need to have a certain kind of, you need to be a certain kind of person to get through to those kids and to be patient. And I think it would start with funding. Fund the school and make it someplace that a teacher wants to go to. You're like, wait, you're gonna pay me how much? Because usually in cities, you get paid a lot more to teach in a city, but you're not gonna get paid as much on the west side as you are on the east side, that's just how that's just how it's going to be. Car- charter schools, you're going to get paid more. And Property so, tax. It's, yeah. why do- so it's dumb. Like teachers do not get paid enough. I, we, that's a whole other subject, but teachers do not get paid enough to give the kids what they need. And the teachers that are good and do get paid enough do not teach in diverse areas because they will not get paid enough to actually give their education's worth. So 
I, I mean, to start all of this, let's fund the schools. Let's figure out, okay, we're not gonna base it off property tax. Let's just base it maybe on populace or not even that, just this school needs more money. This school is fine. Let's put more money over there. So it's just, I don't know, it's an irritating thing for me. It's just kind of watching this and it's, even when I taught in Beloit, I taught for a year and comparison like from Fort Atkinson to Beloit was just such a huge culture shock as a teacher. So it's just so different. The kids, what they knew, what they didn't know. It's like, wait, you don't know that? You weren't taught that. Okay. It's like, oh, you're not expected to do this? Oh, because they just want you to, they just want a place to put you because you're kind of a little bit difficult to deal with. So we're not going to actually push you as hard as we should. So I don't know. I guess we can just start there. Let's screw everything else. Let's fund the kids. It's about the kids. Let's fund schools. Let's put all the money towards the schools. <laughs> right. But also, yeah, cue the need for BIPOC folks in positions of power because we can fund these folks all day, but if we have no one up there advocating for folks like that, nothing will get done because it'll be refuted, you know, either that or it just will not be made easy. We need these voices in positions of power, and that is one of the problems. Like, in basically any predominantly white institution, it's predominantly white. So, like, yeah, we can be like, yeah, if, like, a classroom is almost all white, they won't care it's, that it's a problem because it's never been a problem to them. It's not a problem to them. It's not affecting them. So we have to, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how we're going to make that happen. But, yeah, BIPOC folks need to be in positions of power, and they need to be trusted <laughs> to be in these positions of power. They need to be trained efficiently in these positions of power and not just given like one shot and they mess up and they're just done for, you know, that's an issue too, because they also have to understand that we come in with anxieties, imposter syndrome of not being enough or not knowing enough. We already have, cause we're already fearing that if we mess up, we're going to misrepresent the whole population as it's kind of been displayed, which is probably why there aren't a lot of BIPOC folks in positions of power because they mess up once and then that's it. White folks can mess up all day long and they're just still chilling, you know, like, just, you know, sipping their tea, just defunding education. <laughs> um, laughing, but it's very serious. Like, yeah, and so I wish I had a solution, but yeah, just things just have to be dismantled. Things have to be burned down. Um, yeah. And it's people like us that need to just keep screaming and hollering about it. Yeah, I, I think... I think we all know and understand that this is systemic, that the root of the problem is the system. And you cannot, maybe the US from the moon probably looks like a beautiful house, but at its roots, it has a rotten foundation and it needs to be torn down and rebuilt. It, it can't last like this. We got to the breaking point this past year. We can't. We can't it's not even the breaking point now. yet. It's not even the breaking point. We go much deeper into this. We will keep pushing with this. It just needs, it needs to change. Something needs to be done. I think they're hoping that, like, because we've been silent so long, it's like, well, maybe if we hold out, they'll just give up. But it's like, no, see, we've learned endurance. So it's like, we can outlast you. 
And so it's like they're very, I've heard this many times, it's like they're lucky that Black Americans just want equality and don't want anything else. All we want is what everyone else has because we could burn this place down if we had to. So it's like, they're not, we're not going to, that's not what we want. We don't want everything to go down in flames. We, we wanna live here and have a great life. Can't you just do that? So it's, it's really sad to watch, but it's like people think this is the worst it's gonna get. It's like, if you keep pushing us down, it will get worse. So it's just, I think, I don't know. I, I'm, sad, I'm sad to say this, but I think if true change has to happen, it has to get worse before it can get better. So it's, it's just, everyone has to be uncomfortable. It can't just be the people that are currently experiencing it. It has to be everyone is uncomfortable. It's like, I don't like how this is affecting me personally. So it has to affect everybody. And, um, and until then, it's not going to be an actual legit problem for many people because it doesn't affect them. It has nothing to do with them. They're fine living their life. I have a black friend, so I'm cool. So it's just like, and that's even for black people too. They don't, there are some black people that don't see the problem. That part, that part. Like you actually look at them and I'll see certain clips of things and it's like, wait, what are you saying? And it's like, oh, because you grew up probably similarly to how I grew up, more sheltered, my parents worked really hard to make it so I didn't have to go through the same things my dad did. So I was raised for most of my life in a wealthier part of the area. So because of that, I was sheltered, but it's called educating yourself and it's called, you know, not relying on one source to go, okay, this one source said this obviously is true. It's like, or you could be, you know, take initiative and actually look, at multiple sources. And so I think when you see black people supporting negative things, then white people have an excuse to go, oh, well, see, it's not a big deal because they say it's not a big deal, so it's fine. So I think something's just gotta make everyone uncomfortable. Yes, yes. It's time for them to start asking the questions that make them not comfortable. <laughs> it's It's been time we've dealt with the discomfort our you know our ancestors have dealt with this discomfort we think we'll, they'll be just fine you know if if they can yeah just get over that <laughs> but and then like that's just a problem in itself is that they're so used to that comfort you know like that literal luxury that we have not been granted um the luxury of having a dignified and like respected existence Yes. Like, in the land of the free, you know? <sighs> for, for hopefully the beyond November. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe that'll be the first change. <laughs> that'll be the first. Um, to, I just want to say one, yeah. one strength that we have. Yeah. This conversation's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And that's more conversation about this on like on a platform than Milwaukee is probably really ever seen. Like that it's that there's these conversations that are happening and being broadcasted. And there are more and more people in the arts community. Like not everyone, there are still those silent companies, but there are companies, there there are and there are individuals that are having those uncomfortable conversations. 
and doing their work, doing the work that they are called to do, the work that we're all called to do as sacred beings on this earth. Like there are, there are people doing stuff and like we need to celebrate that there are people amplifying and speaking out and calling, calling out racist behavior. Yes. Like that's, I've seen more of that than I ever have in my life. And I mean, I, I, as a white person, I guess I can't say much about that, but um, that, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. It, and kind of back, just like, yeah, people need to ask questions. They need to get comfortable with asking questions. I feel like, you know, we've grown up in the society where we're, it's kind of frowned upon to ask questions, you know, that make you question why you believe a certain thing, you know, like I can speak on that, like given my Christian background or upbringing, I should say. Um, yeah, I just always felt like I could never ask questions for like fear of like eternal damnation, I guess, you know, like, um, no so politics I, or religion at the dinner table. Exactly. And, and it's, and it's just why, you know, it, asking those questions will help you have a, a more solid foundation to what you already know. It will solidify what you know, what you believe and why. But how can you, yeah, how can you have a solid foundation if you're not acknowledging the fundamentals, if you're not asking these very important, simple questions, um, but we have not made it simple. Society has not made these questions simple to ask. So it's unlearning that, I think. Pride is a huge thing. And I think people are, I think, I think, internally a lot of people know they're wrong it's pride and you don't want to seem wrong actually actually having to admit i was wrong like actually when i saw pictures of people saying at a protest saying i was wrong and you know going and fighting the good fight you know though i love those people Mm. say you're wrong be wrong it's okay that you weren't right it's okay you thought it was fine and then you found out it's not fine it's that we're not gonna go well we, don't, we still don't like you because before you had this thought and uh, it's like, no, it's okay to be wrong. Just admit you're wrong and move on and help instead of no, I'm embarrassed or no, I can't be wrong. Like there's even family members that are like, it's like you're fighting this because you don't want to be wrong. Mm-hmm. It's like the older generation, especially it's like being wrong is just so, so taboo. But my, like, my grandmother, her views when my parents were together, not very good. And now she's like sitting there fighting on Facebook. My grandma is fighting on Facebook <laughs> against people saying stupid things. She's like, You're, we don't speak like that. That's really racist. And my mom's getting embarrassed, actually. <laughs> she's just like, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> but I'm like, hey, she's... She's fighting and she's trying to get her friends to understand that even though they're like in their 70s and 80s, that doesn't mean you can just keep thinking the way you're thinking. You have to, you know, do other things. So I think a lot, I think if people go into a conversation without being defensive right away, not expecting to be judged, just ask the question. Okay, just ask the question. Don't automatically be defensive. Listen to what people say. Listen to the whole thing and then make your judgment based off of that and it and just be like, okay, 
I mean, I don't necessarily agree and have a conversation. You can sit there and debate without anger. You can disagree. You can be wrong. You can be right about something, but it uh, doesn't apply to something else. There are people that'll say things and it's like, you're right in this instance. You're right when it comes to white culture, but you're not right in this instance. So I need you to listen to what I am saying. So I think if people listen and communicate, I think that'll help. And that includes people like us when we're trying to advocate. It's like jumping down people's throats all the time. That just brings up their defensive. Now there's a point where it's like, I'm not going to sit here and be nice. You're wrong. Like, just stop. I I don't want to be nice to you. But if someone is coming at you and asking a question and they really want to know, opening up yourself and going, wow, I appreciate you asking that question. Let's, let's talk. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just, it's a whole thing. And I'm also tired because I don't want to have the answer because I, yeah. I don't yeah. I don't have the answer. I'm never gonna have the answer. I don't I'm I wanna just be able to live my life and do my things that I do and just be like I am who I am and I'll fight, you know, I'll fight for it. I'll fight because I have to, but there I'd love to be one day where it's just like we are we are where we are. You can have the sexuality you want to have. You can be the color you are. You're a woman, you're a man, whatever. You're anything in between. It's just, that would be beautiful. Maybe it'll happen in my lifetime. I would love to have that happen. So, Speaking of living your life and doing your work, I would love to invite you. I know, Nicole, you teach. So if uh, Nicole, Austin, Tiana, if you want to shout out where people can find you in your artistic practice, how they can how they can get in touch. Anyone want to shout that out? Um, I was like, well, I have email. Um, <laughs> I'm not on too many social media platforms, really. Like, I'm not, I have Facebook. Um, I have Instagram. Um, and I'm starting to write a little bit more and get it out there. It's also been one of my personal things, too, is, yeah, just fearing that what I'm going to say is either going to be, like, really jarring or just some discomfort um that or even just me having the struggle to just articulate it and get it out on the paper um so yeah i think either just like on facebook or instagram for me um on instagram handle my handle on instagram is at stoic.butt.hollering and it actually has a deeper meaning too because on the front you know i'm always told that i look so calm and collected um stoic but like my insides um, like hollering like so like surface level yeah I look all calm cool collected but no my insides are raging and just with so much emotion that I'm dying to get out so that is the meaning behind my handle well that's cool you do look stoic well done (laughs) (laughs) from my grandma's jeans man I it's the eyes. It's the, exactly. And that's exactly what I have from her. Her lovely, <laughs> lovely eyes. <laughs> yeah, mine isn't clever. I don't really use Instagram because I, I just don't. But I use Facebook. Um, I have my own page. It's at Nicole Corinne McCarty because I feel like I need to include my middle name for some reason. Um, Classy. Love. It is. It flows. Nicole Corinne McCarty. I feel like that could be in lights. <laughs> yeah, <So>. totally. <laughs> <laughs> Just see my name in lights. That'd be cool. Um, so 
I can be contacted that way, especially. Um, I have an email as well. I'm always looking for new students. People want to learn from me. Feel free to contact me. Yeah, um, I mean, my Facebook, Austin Bear. Uh, I don't really, I don't really have like a social media presence, really. Um, but if you want to talk, it's Austin Bear on Facebook. <laughs> Um, or Instagram. Sorry if I'm going to invite all these strangers to Facebook message you. I, I know. <laughs> sneak into your DMs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, I mean, that's the chance to educate. So Yeah. Um, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, and then my Instagram is austin.bear.four. So. Awesome. And Daniel, can you tell us in these crazy pandemic times, what what a Perry has coming up, how people can support your continued work. Cool. Yeah. So um, we actually raised quite a bit of money for another panel. Um, so we hope in the in the coming months to be um, to be hosting another panel with these three folks diving a little deeper into the topics that we discussed. Um, the format isn't quite figured out quite yet. Um, we are taking a bit of a like calm term this this like this fall we're taking it pretty pretty easy but we do have some pretty exciting things in store for um for next spring and early summer we do i don't even know if i can fully announce this but we have some stuff in the works and it's gonna it's on okay it's on milwaukee Apotheater's website it's already on there but we are planning on um producing monteverdi the, the first major opera um monteverdi's l'orfeo um, with the, the full cast of Aperionimum next, um, next spring, June, depending, depending on what the circumstances are. Um, we have a, a video we shot back in February pre-pandemic that um, we're going to be releasing sometime soon. It's, it's a premiere of a new uh, piece that we've been working on. Uh, we, got all the, we have all the stuff now. Just got to get that time set for that premiere. I'm pretty stoked about that. But to be honest, we we've been talking and we're trying to, we're trying to chill out a little bit right now. Um, a lot of us are feeling the stresses of the pandemic and um, we're trying to take it a little easier. Um, but um, we are definitely, we have operating costs. We have singers that need our organization's help at times. Um, and we're always accepting donations and you can always donate on our website, aperiodimom.com. I think you can donate on Instagram now. It's pretty fancy. Our Facebook has a donate button. Um, and anything that we're receiving right now will just will be going to future programming, future panels like this Black Voices Matter panel, um, early music, early operas. Um, that's in the store right now. We're trying to chill out, but also get some meaningful stuff out. So um, what we what we get out right now will be quality, but just just this little nuggets. Yeah, nuggets of stuff. So cool. I just. Cool. What? what is it like? What? Oh. You are amazing. You are amazing. Oh gosh. Um, yeah. Just speaking. Speaking about like making art in the pandemic. I just like want to call out a few people. Like Wild Space Dance Company and those parking lot dances. Mm. Super cool. Uh, that's a cool solution to this. Uh, Milwaukee Opera Theater doing Doc Danger as a radio play. Yeah. Um, the all, like tons of virtual choir projects coming from gr groups like the Collegium Ladies, the Bach Chamber Choir, like people are finding creative solutions. And I mean, we're artists, we're problem solvers, we're adapters. And um, I think that work has like really hit, hit, hit its head right now. And I think that's, that's amazing. We are, 
We are creators, we're adapters, problem solvers, and this, this unique circum, given the current circumstances, uh, I, I think that we're doing our job and whatever that limit is to what job we can do right now, um, whatever we get out there, it's, it's, I'm seeing a lot of meaningful stuff, a lot of creative solutions and it's really cool. Well, thank you, Daniel, Nicole, Austin, and Tiana. Really appreciative of your time and your perspective. Thanks for taking the time to be with me on this podcast. And everyone stay tuned for what a Perry Anuam has in the future. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe by searching Arts Forward MKE on your favorite listening platform or go to imaginemke.org slash podcast. Also, be sure to check out our other two podcasts, Imagine This Podcast and Black Imagination, and follow us on social, on Facebook as Imagine MKE, and on Instagram and Twitter as at Imagine underscore MKE. Be well, friends.